Hello, fellow lunchers. I'm thrilled that you found your way to us here at Out to Lunch, the ultimate destination for fascinating chat over great food. My guest today is known for travelling across the globe, visiting challenging places, meeting interesting people and getting deep into dangerous situations. He started researching his New York Times best-selling book, The New Jackals, when he was just 21. Once published, a few years later, it became the first mainstream book on Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda and a new age of terrorism. And in the wake of 9-11 made him the man everyone needed to speak to. He's fronted well over 25 globetrotting TV series, including Equator, Indian Ocean and Pilgrimage. Today, we chat about hunting down South African neo-Nazi terrorists, learning to really listen to people and being an adrenaline junkie. It is, of course, author, journalist and broadcaster, Simon Reeve. The best example of that was going in to see the boss of BBC Two with nothing but a single page printed out of a map from Wikipedia, holding up and saying, Indian Ocean. My goodness. And she went, oh, <laughs> and that was it. So for this episode of Out to Lunch, I have come to a development on London's South Bank just by Tower Bridge. You can hear the fountains in the background. The current home of the Great London Authority is here, although they're about to move. And behind me is the restaurant I'm taking Simon Reeve to. Now, he was due, as uh, lockdown one began, to be filming a series in South America. And that didn't happen for obvious reasons, because we were locked down. So I thought it would be nice if I brought him to an outpost of the small group Gaucho, the Argentinian steakhouse chain. See where I'm going? He was meant to be in Argentina. He isn't. So I brought him to a little bit of Argentina on London South Bank by Tower Bridge. And the fountains are here celebrating my choice. Oh, it's all coming together. Let's get inside. This is Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Well, I just want to say welcome to Gaucho. Thank and, you. Uh, from a newspaper man's point of view, which is what I really am, I am intrigued by one part of your story which always gets glossed over. Right. Which is, how did you go from the post room at the Sunday Times to being a researcher and then an investigator and journalist? And what was Andrew Neil's role in that? I would have been 17. I was fresh out of school, having flunked out of my exams. Um, I'd been on the dole, I'd been on the edge of a bridge. I was right down well, by, there. By on the edge of a bridge, you mean thinking of jumping off it? Not just thinking, but on the wrong side of the rails. I didn't really have any ambitions. I got a job as a postboy, eventually. How did that happen? I mean, did, did it come at the local job centre? Did it? I spent a lot of time in those flipping job centres, wandering around, but no, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's a ridiculous story because it came through my dad spotting an advert in an old copy of the Sunday Times. I have a proper ad saying, apply for the postrum here. So it was specifically non-graduates who Andrew Neil um, specifically wanted to enter the postrum. That's extraordinary, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I had a big break where, um, oh, what the hell, John Witherow, yeah. um, he actually came up to me one day when I was sorting the post and said, um, I need you to go on a mission. I was like, okay. <laughs> I need you to go to Boston to find two South African neo-Nazi terrorists who are on the run. <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm, I'm properly really calm that, okay, okay, paling inside, faffing, and, and I was just, uh, yes, yes, okay. And so I went off to 
talk to people I knew there, I was like, he wants me to go to Boston, for goodness sake. I've, I've never been on a plane. And I'll go and say, I, I haven't got a passport. What am I going to do? And I went running around like this, like this sort of headless chicken, telling everybody and anyone. And then Peter, the chief investigative guy, said, calm down, Simon. It's Boston in Lincolnshire. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. But still, Two South African neo-Nazi terrorists. They didn't expect me to find them. They didn't expect them to answer the phone to me and, and let me, you know, that they would meet up. And you with did me. find them. And I did. It wasn't hard. They given we had a lit, some numbers mm. um, where they might be, and people were trying each number, and they were sending dogs' bodies like me, gophers, to actually knock go on and the knock door. on doors to see if they would answer. Oh, it's bizarre. These two guys on the platform and. Little Boston in Lincolnshire, carrying a bag of documents and a bag of weapons and and documents that showed they'd been funded by the South African Security Service. Thank you very much. Destabilizing okay. the peace process. Big stuff. Anyway, I did that, and after that, you're sort of away. Sort of unfairly, perhaps. The reason I chose Gaucho was you were literally meant to be wandering all over South America and I thought it might be either amusing or just rubbing your face in it to take you to a, an Argentinian restaurant. I did have one of my most memorable ever meals with some gauchos in Argentina. Now, there's a menu to your left. Yes. I don't know what you fancy. It's an Argentinian restaurant. They have steaks. A scallops acceptable to order. Scallops are fine. Uh, they're diver, they're not dredged. I might have the scallops. All right, diver scallops, and I will, um, Actually, I'll have the shrimp ceviche. Any choice? And then you want a ribeye? so sirloin. A strip of juicy crackling quite appeals to me. <laughs> I'll have the chorizo sirloin, please. Something in the middle, 400 grams. And I'll have a ribeye. And can I get some king oyster mushrooms as a side? Can we share those? Yeah. And chips. What does the steak come with, I should? Oh, look, it's... Cows enjoying mm -hmm. a lush free lifestyle. Lush free range lifestyle, sorry. Like you, as you do, Simon. <laughs> Can I get some of the chimichurri on the side? Of course. Do you want a sauce? Uh, no, I won't actually. Cool. I think I've got the chorizo and the juicy crackling. You'll be fine. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll have the spinach actually, please. Yeah, thank you. May I just ask if you are happy with the medium rare? I am. Yes, please, thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you very much. Right, the complicated bit is done. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God, that's good, thank you. You've got scallops with breadcrumbs mm. and is there a little, uh, I think, romesco sauce under there? I think there's some romesco sauce. Is there some yeah. romesco sauce? Yeah. Obviously, some of what you do <coughs> is dangerous or transpires, becomes dangerous. Just for anybody who's not necessarily across your entire earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. pushing it too far, still includes interviewing commanders of FARC and asking them how many people they've killed. Mm. Going into the most dangerous prison in the world with a bishop for protection, because God knows they're handy with their fists. Mm. Um, <laughs> the famous landmine Field on the border with Mauritania. Yes, all right. Well, now you say it. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm just. But honestly, you obviously, because you're here having lunch with me, you've yeah. survived all of these. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it could have gone horribly wrong sometimes, but so can walking out in the street or, or choking on a chip. I'm not being too flippant, I hope. But you're slightly. Life, but life is risky. You know, you and I, we will have experienced death in our lives. We'll have known people who've died tragically too early. We cannot live on our knees and we have to mitigate risk wherever possible, sensibly, but we still have to live in existence. But okay, no, I'm not, I'm not, yes, we've driven through a minefield. Yes, we've got lost in a minefield. That wasn't what we expected to do. We had to deal with the situation as we found it. We did knowingly go into a inmate controlled prison in Honduras, which was very dangerous, but we knew we had or we felt we knew that the gangs had a solid chance of talking to us and wanting us to be there. We did go in with somebody who we felt they trusted. We made a considered um, judgment about the bishop's likelihood of, uh, of protecting us, his ability to, yeah. and their, you know, these things were considered. It wasn't done daftly. When these things but, are happening, mm, do you get scared? Not, not that much anymore. And I don't think really very much when I'm in a situation like that. I'm thinking about too many other things. I'm thinking about where the camera is. Are they okay? What the hell are we doing? Where are we going? What on earth is he saying, trying to understand? Is anyone looking sketchy? Um, are they getting nervy themselves? You know, I'm, I'm processing almost too much. My brain hasn't got the space for the nerves in that moment. But I do also think because I'm middle-aged and I've been doing this a long time. I've worked that muscle, if you like, and, and it's, I've got better at dealing with it and doing with it, but I still want to feel affected by it. There have been times when I've thought, looking back, I should have been more worried about this. I write in the book about a moment, for example, where we were in Honduras, after we, before we went into the prison, I think, and we, we, we were out in the gang areas where there are murders. This, the, the suffering there is terrible. And we'd had a call saying there'd been a, um, two policemen or there'd been a shooting. They thought a couple of policemen might have been involved. Maybe they'd been killed. And we tailgated a police car or an ambulance through heavy traffic to try and get to the scene of this. You've been invited murder. to do so, or were you just? I don't know. I think we were just. It wasn't quite. We were just going. Right. And. Um, and we, we got slightly separated from the car in front, we got boxed in, we were stuck on this road, there was really, it was a gridlock. And then somebody said almost jokingly, do you want us to cross the central reservation and drive the wrong way down the motorway? And I'm like, yeah, great. And I turned to my colleague in the back and, do you and he was like, okay. And so we said, yeah, and the guy was a bit surprised, but they went for it and we crossed the central reservation and we drove down the wrong, the wrong way down the motorway. And we were sort of weaving a bit and it was, it was far from ideal and I'm sure a breach of conventional health and safety, but we weren't bothered at all. And I remember thinking about it afterwards and realizing that a colleague in the back had just been texting and I'd just been eating a flapjack. And then I thought, okay, that was- That's the problem, isn't that it? That was because a bit too much. It, it, yeah. you do riskier and riskier things, <clears throat> you become inured to yeah. the basically risky. Um, but I think we're pretty good at it. I really genuinely do. Um, I think we're pretty good at gauging the risk and, and mitigating it. And you were saying about, have you been, people said no. Okay, so traveling around the Mediterranean, we wanted to go and film in the site, excuse me, in the mm -hmm. Sinai. And we were told, we just cannot find anyone that you can 
um, ally yourself with? Any um, militant group that is that would keep you alive or the army there where there's just no one. It's just the most dangerous place in the world to try and film there. It, it cannot be done. And we tried and tried and we just couldn't. So there I was told no, effectively, but it wasn't somewhere where I was saying suicidally, we're going. I've got to accept the facts. My, the people I work with have got families, you know, we, we well, want to come home. Which, is, which brings me to the other point. The people you work with have got families and so do you. Yeah. You talk very movingly about uh, meeting Anya, your wife, who's also a camera woman, traveller, many things. Mm. And early on, uh, you travelled together and worked together. Uh, you now have a son together, Jake. But one of the most, and uh, just sort of some background, I was asked by editors at various times to go to Rwanda, I was asked to go to Iraqi Kurdistan long before I became food critic. And the reason I didn't was because I couldn't countenance just how terrified my partner, wife, would be of not knowing I was safe. Mm. Do you ever think about that? About Anya at home not knowing wow. how you are? That's very interesting. I do. We're all different and how we process our fears and concerns is all very different. I think my wife, Anya, should speak for herself on it. Um, far be it from me, but what she said is she knows we're pretty careful. She knows what I do, why I do it. She's worked on the programmes. She's fairly, she's cool and calm and, and, and appropriate. You, you, you can be away for weeks at a time? Yeah. I think the area where it's been difficult has been with my son. Well, I was going to ask you about that because, um, you know, uh, I don't think I'm, I'm in any way tresp trespassing on something private here because the book is dedicated to Jake. No, no, it's fine. And uh, at top, and top and bottom, you talk about wanting him to have a sense of adventure. Mm. Someone being very critical could say, and yet, on a regular basis, you abandon him. Mm. You leave. You're just not there. I don't think abandon would be fair. No, I think they have to be pretty hypercritical for the abandon. I don't think that's warranted. Okay. Um, no, abandon, I think, suggests without care. And that's just not the case. I mean, he's been left with somebody who dotes and, and, and cares for him much better than I ever could and very tangibly with grandparents as well and other loved ones and friends and family around. But yes, I go away. That is my job. I am not a squaddy going off and doing a six-month tour. I'm a teleponce who goes away for a few weeks yeah. and comes back. And my entire working existence is scheduled around my son's life and his holidays, which are marked out in bloody blue fluorescent pens so I can be there for him. But yes, I've missed parts of his life, and I, that's because I've been away earning and working and, and being a relatively fulfilled I don't know. I, it's, 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 you sound, it sounds to me like you do. It's not that I've asked the question. It's something you struggle with. No, I haven't struggled with it, in truth. I haven't thought about it enough. But the whole lockdown process of where, you know, I'm slightly twiddling thumbs, trying to do yeah. um, home parenting and being a bit rubbish at it, but also thinking about what I'm going to do. And, and you know, my, my son was a bit interested in the journeys during lockdown, so I started talking about some of the journeys, boring him again with tales from the Congo and so on. And then it did give me a thing, chance to think back about um, the adventures and experiences and map out what I'd done and realise, my goodness, yeah, I left him as a baby and went to Mogadishu. 
You know, that's, that's not good at all. Um, but that's my job. It wasn't done on a whim. It wasn't done um, to promote an album or something. It was to genuinely is, try is the and point that it about. was your job before he arrived? Before he arrived, during... Uh, that's how I... That's how... It's how both my wife and I, we, we, we earn our living. And, you know, she's intimately involved at every stage. So she, I think in terms of, her, of how she feels about it, I think she knows as much as I do about what's going on and how we do it and has been on the other side of the camera and still helps plan and is involved in the logistics. So she's up on that. I think, you know, in terms of the criticism, I think it's much more fair to say, what the hell are you doing leaving your lad? I've got one son. He hasn't got lots of siblings to turn to as well. Mm. Um, and I worry about it, I do. And I, there's a, you know, I, I wanted to be candid about that in the book and, and I've put in one of the most intimate, personal things I could, which is a letter I wrote him at a moment when I was very emotional and a bit drunk and had some really spiritual encounters and I wrote him a letter because I was worried that I wasn't going to be around for him. And yes, something could have happened in those years that meant I might not be or I might have been um, horrifically injured. Yes, it's possible. Um, do I think the job justifies it? I do, I do, I still really do, and I feel more confident saying that, even though you know I'm a cringingly um, self-apologizing character, you know. But I think it, I think it's really bloody important that we get out there and we show people what's going on in the world. That's a massively important thing. Whether I'm the best person for it, well, that's a whole other matter. But yeah, you've got the gig. I've got the gig. Yeah, yeah, and people watch. I can't believe they do, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. Where else do you want to go? What, what are the things? The I want to go thing? back to South America and, and finish filming, continue filming there. And Is I that still we'll scheduled to. to happen? Yeah, we're hoping to. Um, it, it really matters what's going on there. And we've already done some filming, which was brilliant. And we had some incredible stories there. And we, I really want that to be out on the telly. Um, I'd love to go to Japan, West Africa. You've never done West Africa? I've been, I've traveled a lot in Africa but not so much in West Africa, and I'd love to go to Senegal and Mali. But one of the challenges for me, as, as shallow as it is, just to, you know, it's not an insight into the media, but maybe it is as well. You know, you, I've got to come up with a journey that can be encapsulated um, in a small, you, know, you can get it from a really short, sexy, evocative title. The title has to have that elusive promise of pleasure. Now, my best, the best example of that was going in to see the boss of BBC Two with nothing but a single page printed out of a map from Wikipedia and say, holding up and saying, Indian Ocean, showing a map of the Indian Ocean. That was it. Indian Ocean, my goodness. And she went, oh, <laughs> and that was it. Six part series commissioned. On the basis of a page of Wikipedia base, and you're going, oh, Indian yes, Ocean. Yes, yes. How did the first of your travel shows happen? I was still very late 20s. I'd written a book. I was an author. Um, Who contacted you? God, I can't. Was it the BBC or was it uh, a TV production There were a few different uh, approaches around the same time because I'd been doing the sort of um, uh, pundit on a, on a, in the, in the, in the studio sort of chats about what on earth was going on in the world. 
And so then I started talking with broadcasters. Some had some really daft ideas. One was an American, the the worst was an American company that wanted me to infiltrate Al-Qaeda for a TV series. And you know, I mean, I listened, right? But they had- Made in Kandahar. Whoa, they were right. They had no idea. It was terrifying to meet people who had so much dosh that they could do things with and so little idea about what that might involve. One of the things that's very striking about you is your use of silence, hmm. of not peppering questions. Is that a fair description of it? Uh, yes. I'll just have a sip of wine and you talk. <laughs> I think Peter Hownham at the Sunday Times, he said to me, um, you know, you just, you just, if you just stop talking, people will fill that, that gap, that gaping hole. They'll tell you things that you really want to hear. It's not to outrageously elicit what somebody doesn't want to say. It's just to sort of create a bit of space to make it possible, I think, I would like to, to claim. But yeah, sometimes I'll just keep smiling at them and, and they'll keep chatting drives the guys I'm with a bit bonkers sometimes. They're holding 14 kilos on their shoulder and trying to keep it in focus and I'm just sitting there smiling and somebody's chatting away. We want to know what's going on. We don't always get it right, definitely. I mean, there's times when I feel like, ooh, we've missed the mark there. You know, we've got to try and sum up a situation or a story and we do our best with it, we really do. Sometimes with a bit of silence. I can see how long I could just not interrupt you with questions. You didn't last long, did you? <laughs> no, didn't. Where have you got it Doesn't wrong? Work on a podcast. Where have you got it wrong? Oh goodness, um, Ireland. I think uh, we filmed a couple of programs in Ireland. Yeah. And we started the first. Pro- I mean, we had the whole mix in there, really, in the two programs. But we started, uh, and within quite quickly, we had. Um, a fairy believer who had a story about how a motorway had been rerouted because a fairy bush was blocking the construction path. And then we went to a potato festival in the southwest. And oh my goodness, we got, I mean, not death threats or anything, but we got some flack on the old social flipping media. And fair dues, I mean, I understand, but what, what I hadn't. What, because well, you were portraying the Irish people was, as a bunch of literally being away with the fairies? Yeah, a bit of, of paddywhackery, I yeah. think that phrase was used. And I hadn't thought enough about Brits being a Brit in Ireland. I think it's because I don't feel I am the establishment. You know, I'm not the English person going, well, I don't it, feel that baggage really. But what they, people don't know that. They all think of me as another bloody public school boy. It's, it's no quite doubt. an interesting repeated line in material about you and in, you know, in interviews with you is he didn't come from a background of privilege. Yeah, that's is almost it not me interesting it? that <laughs> there is an assumption that a white guy on yeah. TV is going to be that when you came from a you know, sort of solid middle class background in acting? Well, your dad was a maths teacher. My dad was a maths teacher, but none of, he, he didn't go to university. Nobody in my family ever went to has ever been to university. We were middle class in the sense he'd clawed his way from outside toilet, single family. Sounds like he was livid quite a lot of the time as well. Livid? Yeah. No, he struggled. He struggled? Yeah. He had, um, he had a tough time, you know. He was a teacher 
in a difficult period in one of the toughest schools in the country and he had nothing to fall back on educationally himself you know he was he was an outsider and and he had no he had no father figure himself right. to pull on to draw on to know how to do it he came from a single fam single parent family he was an only child that was hard and he wasn't great at being you know a, a modern dad he was much more of a 1950s dad i suppose there was a point when one of your teachers said i i know that your father can be difficult yeah i know it can't be easy that sort of thing yeah. um yeah i feel torn about putting that in i put that in about putting that in print really because i feel disloyal and i love him and i miss him so so very desperately and and i mean no ill to him i think he struggled but i think all i would try and point out is that the difficulties we had it's just bloody life it's just trying he he tried he would have tried to do the right thing and follow the right parental life track but strayed a bit from it now and again you know and and it was it was difficult growing up for me yeah. thank you I have to say, it does look very good. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Are we on the tail end of a pandemic? I think we might be. If yeah. We all have our stories about the world shutting down around mm. us. Was there a point in the spring of, or the March of 2020, mm. when it dawned on you that the traveling life that you've been leading was going to stop? And how did you feel about it? I think it was probably in January 2020 for me, actually, because I'm a sort of cynical, glass half full, negative, pessimist sort of type. I thought it could be um, over, but I didn't, I, had, I didn't have any idea for how long. The impression you give in the new book, published on the day that we're talking, yeah. Journeys to Impossible Places, is that actually the whole concept of lockdown, of stopping, was for you a bloody nightmare. Mm. Other people... I, I know, other people died in the, in the they pandemic. They really suffered. And people I mean, I suffered. I'm honest to God, I'm not looking for a second for any sympathy. And I got far too much sympathy from people. Oh, poor Simon, he can't go off on his adventures. I mean, you know, 
I'm there. I'm a, a low-level telly presenter, but I've, I've yeah, got yeah, a. Yeah. I, 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 we'll, we'll accept all of that. But what I am interested in is the is the the person underlying that yeah. and how much a part of your fabric, your DNA, the sense of travel was. But I think what's uh, how, interesting how damaging it was to you. Yeah, it was it was really hard, and I think if I can represent in some way a little a bit the people who need to travel, love to travel, have it in their in their proper DNA, then all right. Um, yeah, it's hard for me, and it was hard for us. I think we've got this, we've got into this sort of rut almost where we just associate travel with this almost um, flippant city break, almost that, that sort of, oh, on, done on a whim. And travel is so much more than that. It is so really at the heart of some people's life experience. And it is really, I think, very much a part of the core of what it is to be a human being for many people, that desire to know what is out there, what is round there. And so I feel that I've become, I think I realized during the, Couple, first couple of months of the pandemic, my God, I'm really bloody addicted to this. I really need these experiences. Like, you know, you're, you're almost, I suppose, war correspondent, adrenaline junkie, frankly. You, you, you know, that, that rush of the new experience and the encounter was what I, I craved and I missed. I did get these sort of weird withdrawal symptoms an issue that you've raised many times mm. and you seem to be becoming more concerned about it, which is that you're no longer just showing exotic places around the world, but displaying the impact we are having upon it. I think we've always tried to do that and it's a really hard part of the journey. It's probably the, one of the toughest, along with leaving people behind which, um, you know, is probably difficult. When you say leaving people behind, people who are in poverty or in distressing lives and they're suffering, yeah. you've people interviewed them, they've been, they've been camera fodder and then you're off. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've leached off them in, in some, yeah, I mean, I beat myself up about that, that bit, definitely, and then, and then we go. You've talked about leaving <laughs> gifts. Yeah. Have you ever given money? Yeah, definitely. So that's a, that shouldn't surprise you. We're humans. Yeah, we're traveling in difficult places, but we would never give before. So we would never make it a condition or a lure to talk with us. But I might remember ones where hmm, we talked to somebody and they, they, they needed an eye operation that would have cost $25 and they couldn't. That, those stories like that, of course, afterwards, if you can, if it's appropriate, you, you take them to one side and you do it in the most respectful way possible. When you're there, when you're still guided, hopefully, by some sort of internal bit of a compass, right, you have to make decisions based on that situation. And yes, we would definitely try and help where possible. But there are times when we absolutely haven't been able to, and times, endlessly when we haven't been able to and we move on and it's 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 very very upsetting but the wider point to step back from the individuals because we focus almost in some ways too much on individuals because that's what makes magazine newspaper tv etc that's charity appeals if we step back then yes what we have tried to do from the beginning is show the impact that collectively we're having um, what we're doing to the planet. Yes, I'm more upset, I'm more worried, I'm more angry. Um, I'm more frightened, actually, and um, baffled. <laughs> because 
everything I I would do is is from the standpoint of somebody who loves human beings and I want us to continue. I want us to survive. I think we're a wonderful species and creature, and I adore us. What the what the hell are we doing? Why have our systems failed us so much that we are genuinely risking destruction of our of our entire species as a civilizational creature in, in this century. I, I mean, it's much worse than people think. It's much worse than we're being told as well. And that responsibility weighs very heavily on me. Would somebody do it else do it better? I don't know. I think we've done pretty well from the start, but we really try to show the impact and we try and do it in different ways that keep people engaged, but bloody hell, you know, people have been doing it forever and still it's COP26 and we're still not sure whether humanity is going to step back. I want to take it to a back full circle from the perspective of you're now 50. Nearly, Jay, nearly. Just about. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're 49. Yeah, I'll give you that. Oh. Simon, you're now 49. <laughs> if you were in a position to give advice to the 17-year-old Simon Reeves standing on the wrong side of the railings on that bridge over the A40. Apart from, get back over here, you asshole. <laughs> if you wanted to tell him something about how life was going to work out, what would you say? He'd never have believed it. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, over the years, as I have thought about this, and I thought, oh, I would say, Simon, it will get better. You'll be okay. I wouldn't have listened. I don't think you can always be so certain that the power of the truth or, or promise can, can take somebody back. And, and I, think it's a, I think it's a slightly risky thing to imagine for those of us who are trying to help or deal with somebody who is struggling. Sometimes it has to come from them. They have to say, themselves, I need to live, I need to change, I need to do this. And not saying don't love, I'm not saying don't care, but it will be all right, wouldn't have worked on me. What might have worked would have been, rather than don't do it, come on, you ape step back, would have been, do you wanna go for a walk? I think it would have been, um, opportunities, suggestions. I didn't really have those. I didn't have much of an imagination for what was possible. And I think if somebody had perhaps made suggestions that might have worked, had walked a bit of a path with me, but more than anything, <laughs> just walked any bloody path, frankly, because I really, and I really believe there is a power in just one foot after another, just in nature or the streets of West London, wherever the hell you are, just going for a walk. That's what we're designed to do. And it starts to provide answers. So I would say that really. Uh, and I would say to people who are loving someone who's in trouble, don't beat yourself up. You're trying. I think you can apply it to countries, you know. <laughs> I've been in quite a few countries where you feel the world is shaking them by the shoulders and saying, don't do this. You can do something else. It doesn't have to be like this until they tell themselves. Well, I have to say on that note, I'm going to say, Simon Reeve, thank you for letting me take you out to lunch oh, while you're working your way one piece at a time through your massive steak. Yeah. 
Um, it's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much for having me on. I really did get to cover a lot of ground with Simon there. His uh, memoir, Journeys to Impossible Places, is available now. Thank you to Gaucho. We visited the outpost near Tower Bridge, but do visit gauchorestaurants.com as there are a number of locations across the capital and elsewhere in Britain. Naturally, we'd be thrilled if you could share this with everyone you know. Comment, give us, I don't know, five stars? Why not? It helps people to discover us. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's comedian and TV presenter Patrick Keelty. There was one point where a guy came up and I said, you know, well, we like that joke, but we're not sure about that. The, you know, the boys aren't sure about that joke. So, uh, are we talking IRA? Yeah, we're talking like paramilitaries. or like, you know, going, we're not sure and, about that one. Is that the worst review you've ever had? I mean, was probably not. <laughs>